Hello everyone, and welcome to Lyrics of Their Life. Today I have another very special guest for you, none other than Tim Staffel. Tim Staffel was known best for his time in the band Smile, alongside Brian May and Roger Taylor, before leaving to join Humpy Bong, which ultimately opened the door for Freddie Mercury to take his spot and eventually form Queen. Tim went on to play in a number of bands ranging in style and eventually moved into the world of prop design, animation and model design before making a return to music in the early 2000s where he has since put out two solo albums and he plans on recording a third once COVID restrictions ease. It was a great privilege to speak with Tim and here is that interview for you now. Hello and welcome to Lyrics of Their Life. Today we're joined by a very special guest, Tim Staffel, formerly the lead vocalist and bass player of the band Smile. Tim, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to the show. Real pleasure, Adam. Thanks for uh, inviting me. Um, so let's start from the very beginning. You were born on the 24th of February, 1948 and raised yes. in Isleworth, London, England. Could yep. you describe for our listeners what it was like growing up in the area? Well... The thing about Britain after the war, after the Second World War, I, I mean, I was born three years after the end of the war. And, uh, you know, so much so much resources had been spent uh, on trying to fight that war that we were still in a really sticky situation. I mean, food was rationed. Well, not all food was rationed, but some things were rationed. Milk, eggs were rationed. Um, it was difficult to get certain commodities. Uh, I mean, the, the, I because I wasn't aware of this at the time. I was because I was like one and two and three. But yeah. you know, but Britain was uh, Britain was was suffering in a post-war situation, which really didn't um, it really didn't uh, resolve itself until the late fifties and the beginnings of rock and roll in Britain, yeah. uh, which probably has a lot to do with 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 actually what happened to us in terms of the. The, what we would now call the cultural revolution of the 60s it, yeah. it, it 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 was it was started in the austerity of the 50s basically or the or the climate for it to flourish uh started in the austerity of the 50s i mean you know all through my single digit life uh it was quiet peaceful nothing was going on i still talk to people and uh, who i knew at the time who, who survived with me that in those days there were no cars there were no damn cars you mm. know you could you, i could sit outside my house and when a car came along i would run and knock on the door next to of the house next to me where a friend of mine lived and said there's a car coming there's a car coming yeah. <laughs> and, and you know you just can't believe that now because the roads are full yeah of cars and mm. every family owns at least two cars you know it's just crazy <laughs> yeah that's true and, and in that period of time we've polluted the planet <laughs> almost yeah. out of existence <laughs> crazy yeah yeah um what do you what are some of your early childhood memories Gosh, um, the, in 51, I've got vague memory in 51 of being taken by my dad to the Festival of Britain, which oh, yeah. was, um, I guess, a kind of an attempt. It was like an expo. It was an attempt to kickstart the British economy by displaying and exhibiting what we had to offer, whatever that was. Uh, there was, I mean, there was military stuff there. There was industrial stuff, you know, uh, but I mean, I can't remember it in detail. All I can remember is the vague recollection of being taken over Waterloo Bridge, uh, and there was a there was a flying boat parked on the Thames, a big flying boat. You know, I mean, they, they don't have flying boats these days, mm. but in those days, you know, aircraft that took off from water, big big aircraft that took off from water were quite um were quite a thing, mm. and I remember seeing one. So that was that's about my earliest memory, and then of course Elizabeth was crowned uh, in '53 yeah. when I was five. Mm. So I kind of vaguely remember that. I, I, I mostly remember it because we had souvenirs that lasted beyond that time, mm. and I suppose that uh, that they, they they reminded me of that. That and uh, and actually we didn't have a television 
It mm. was televised, black and white TV, but we didn't have a television, so we couldn't see it. Yeah. So I think we, we must have listened on the radio. We didn't get a telly till late 50s. Yeah. Uh, that was probably my next major memory. Yeah. Actually, no, we got a record player. Oh, yeah. Late 50s, first thing we got was a record player, and mm. that was when I started listening to rock. Yeah. And, well, it wasn't rock then. Um, I started listening to... I, I listened to Lonnie Donegan. I listened to, actually, American Country at the time. There wasn't much else. Uh, Elvis was around, but I hadn't heard of him at that point. Chuck Berry was around, but he hadn't made his presence felt in England until, you know, the turn of the 60s. Um, but, but, that, but that was a, a, a significant part of, of life then, was the, the coming of the record player yeah. and then the coming of the television, uh, which happened in Britain in late late 60s, late 50s. Did you have any, um, like, favourite hobbies, like sports or music or art? I always, I'd always been a... I'd always been a scribbler, a doodler. Yeah. Um, I, I was I was never very sporty, to be honest. Uh, I, I, I never dug sport, you know. Um, even when I was at my infant school, my junior school, up mm. to the age of 11, we formed a little skiffle band. Yeah. Uh, when we were just kids, you know, um, T-chess bass. Uh, I think somebody might have had a plastic guitar <laughs> and we would have, just sung up god knows what we would have sung mm. anything 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 and everything um the 11 year old kids can remember you know yeah i i can't recall now but 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 drawing was the other thing i used to draw a lot you know yeah. and, I, and I, i'd always been a and i used to take things apart as well oh, i used yeah. to take yeah. toys apart yeah if, if if when i was given a toy for for christmas or birthday the first thing i'd do is dismantle it yeah. <laughs> and not be able to put it back together again. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. cool. So you mentioned a couple of the first musicians you sort of listened to um, growing up, like into your teenage years and all that. Who were some of your biggest influences in music? Well, Chuck Berry. I mean, uh, I was aware of Presley and yeah. I did buy a couple of Presley records, but uh, I always felt... I mean, this has probably defined my musical career a bit anyway. I think I always felt that Presley was a bit show busy. Yeah. You know, he was kind of a bit flash. Yeah. And, uh, and I, preferred, I preferred my musicians to, to exhibit some kind of sort of semi-seriousness about, about playing. I mm. mean, Barry, Barry was a bit of both. He was, he was a bit flash, but he was a player. You know, you couldn't you couldn't really say that Elvis was a player. He yeah. strummed yeah. to accompany himself, but I I wouldn't be surprised if they turned the volume down in the mix. Yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but but we knew Barry played, and that was an important thing. And mm. same with ev all the other blues players that were the first ones that I became aware of. They all played. You know, Howlin' Wolf, Sonny Boy Williamson, Little Walter, um, Jimmy Reed. They all played. And uh, and I think that's what it's and it's how I learned to play. I learned to play because of the blues. Yeah, which I think a lot of a lot of musicians in England at the time. Mm. It's it, and it's something that that young musicians these days don't always have. My son is a drummer. Uh, he's my drummer. He's been my drummer on all of my solo albums. Yeah, uh, and he plays piano as well, but. He he's not really aware of the blues tradition, not the way I was, mm. and and what he isn't able to draw on is the the ease of being able to play twelve bar blues, because mm. that's how we learned. Yeah. Twelve bar blues are all simple; they're mm. all the same, exactly the same, and and uh, and they're a good way to learn. But if you don't have that as part of your culture, I think you're missing something. You know. Was bass guitar the first instrument you picked up, or no? I, I played guitar. Yeah. Um, although to be to be fair, I was a singer above anything else. Yeah. I I, I uh, and and I I only initially picked up the guitar so that I could accompany myself if I wanted to play at home because I wasn't a pianist and you can't and you can only sing to the, the radio unless you've got a guitar and if you know a few chords mm. and you can play a few chords. You can sing along and accompany yourself. And that's how it started. 
But of course, when I met Brian, Brian was such a great player that there was no no point in me playing guitar as well at that point. So I switched over to bass. Yeah. And so that's how Smile um, came about. I'd become I I became a bass player out of necessity, and the three of us were, were a kind of little self-contained unit. You attended an all boys school named Hampton Grammar. Yep. Um, what was it like, and uh, what were some of your favourite subjects at school? Well, it was a bit <laughs> grim, to be honest. Yep. Um, Brian was there, as you know, and it was only actually the music that made it tolerable. It was a, it was a, a pretty formal type of school. Yep. Um, it wasn't strictly religious, but the headmaster was a, a, was a clergyman. He was a vicar. Or, I yep. mean, he was, he, he was a... He, he was an ecclesiastical man mm. uh, and he was, he had zero tolerance. He had zero tolerance for fun. So we were not supposed to carry ourselves in a flippant manner. We had to be serious about learning. We, everything was, you know, it was dead formal. I don't think yeah. that's right, but yeah. that's the way it was in those days. Um, I used to like art. I used to like French. I used to like maths. When I was 13, I had a real bad accident in the summer holidays. Mm. Um, I was, uh, was hospitalised for like two months. Mm. And by the time I recovered and I went back to school, I'd lost a lot of time. Yeah. And, and I lost out a bit. My academic career suffered because of that. Uh, and I backed up that loss with uh, inbuilt laziness as well. Mm. So, I, so if I didn't really achieve what I should have done academically it was a combination of having lost a lot of time through injury and being a lazy sod as well basically (laughs) I read that you were part of a band called the Railroaders uh do you remember your very first performance do you know do you know it's so difficult to I, I can only remember um vaguely remember the band I can remember rehearsing in somebody's front room i can remember the guitarist had a, a watkins rapier guitar which mm. was a british make of guitar because in those days nobody could afford fenders yeah you know or gibsons nobody could afford them uh and that's about all i remember about that band although we did do we were playing blues we were playing the blues of, and when i did play harp i was playing mouth organ at that oh, yeah. time as well so uh so i was just a singer and um, and I was playing mouth organ, and uh, we might have done a church hall somewhere, but really I can't recall, you know. Yeah. If we did do gigs, well, I'm sure we did gigs, but probably less than 10 altogether, you know, yeah. maybe even less than five. Yeah, yeah. It was a very short-lived affair. Was that one of your first bands? Yep, yeah. I mean, it's it, the, 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 other, the thing, one of the things that was difficult about Britain in terms of getting music together and this lasted into the 60s as well well this was the 60s of course logistically it was difficult to get a band together it was was difficult to find somebody to rehearse parents didn't like it unlike the states where parents really liked their kids being musicians Mm. in Britain parents hated it and all we had to do was if you grew your hair long they hated Mm. you for it they really hated you for it yeah. which probably made us want to do it even more. But it was a real big thing um, in the 60s. The post-war generation of parents, when they saw what was happening to the kids, growing hair, playing loud music, they didn't dig it at all. Yeah. And so there was a bit of tension. But, you know, maybe that tension was what gave rise to the beginnings of, of what we call what we now call the Cultural Revolution, yeah. you know, the swinging 60s, amongst other things. Because there was other things too, but you know that yeah. tension was certainly part of it. Yeah. Um, through Hampton Grammar, like you mentioned earlier, you met Brian May for the first time and decided yeah. to start a blues rock band named 1984. What was Brian like as a person, and um, what did you initially make of his ability on guitar? He was—he's always been a lovely bloke. He's a lovely bloke now, and he was a lovely bloke then. Yeah. And he's—he's uh, uh, he's gentle. He's sensitive. He's intelligent. And he's a very, very nice bloke, and he was then. And yeah. we were we were friends beyond the band. We'd sometimes we'd go on holiday together. He'd come over my house before with, with, without playing. He, mm. We were just we were just mates. Although he was in the 
uh, he's older than me and he was in a year above me at, at Hampton. Mm. Or it might have been two. No, I think it was just one year. Um, it, it, it was above, and we kind of just clicked together, you know, it was a mutual thing. I, I think we must have seen each other. It's probably in the books and I've probably forgotten. I heard him playing one day. He heard me playing harp. Mm. We kind of spoke about getting together. There was Dave Dilloway, who was the bass player. Yeah. We, there was a drummer. There was Richard Thompson, the drummer. And there was John Gardner, who was also at Hampton. And 1984 just meshed. And yeah. we did a lot more gigs with 1984. That that was, although it was a covers band, um, we did do a lot of gigs. We we didn't get a great deal of money as students, just mm. pocket money from parents, you know, yeah. or maybe from a Saturday job. But we certainly topped up our income with the gigs that we did because we did quite mm. a lot of them. Yeah. And uh, as far as Brian's playing, well, he clearly was a, an extremely good player. I mean, there was there were a lot of actually very good players around in those days. Um, yeah. the, the other really good players, the guy who was with the others, which was the other school band, yeah. um, which was a, a guy called Peter Hamilton, um, who I still speak to now. I spoke to him last week. Yeah. Um, an, another really dexterous guitar player, but not a writer. Thing is, not a writer, not a songwriter, and 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 uh, and I think that's what separated Brian apart from a lot of people was he was a writer. Yeah. And if you're a writer, you if you're a writer, it means you've got more ideas, mm. you know. And I think and you've only got to listen to the way he solos now to yeah. realise that he's a guy that is brimming with ideas, you know. Yeah. I mean it's like anything, isn't it? You can only be good at something if you've got I an idea about how to be good at it. If mm. you don't have that idea, you you can practice as much as you want. You will never be that good, yeah. which is why I'm not very good. <laughs> <laughs> you enrolled at Ealing Arts College, where you became friends with another fellow student named Farouk or Freddie Balsara, aka yeah. Freddie Mercury. Yep. What was your first impression of Freddie? What was Freddie like as a student, and do you have any fond memories of him during this time? Yeah, I mean, it was it, Freddie was um, kind of a bit restrained, I think. Um, in those days, I mean, he, he was always very simply dressed, yeah. like blue jeans and a white shirt, a, like a formal white shirt you know, with maybe a T-shirt underneath it. And I say that because a lot of the students in the art, because it was an art college, but a lot of the students in the class tended to dress in a more, in a bo more bohemian kind of style. But Freddie and I didn't. I mean, I I may have been slightly more bohemian than Freddie, but but but, but maybe not. Well, at, at least initially. And I, and I think we kind of um, we associated because we seem to be the same kind of people. So I mean, I know it's, it's a crazy thing to talk about class, but mm. if if you if you feel as though there's a resonance between you and and a person because you're you seem to be on a comparable level, maybe class wise, maybe um, culture wise, you, you, that's those are the people you'll be drawn to. You know, there were other people in my year group who were a bit way out, I mean, a bit bohemian, who yeah. I probably wasn't quite so drawn towards. Freddie and I were just... And there were other people, too, in that little yeah. enclave, you know. Mm. So so we, we, we naturally gravitated together. We discovered we liked the same sort of music, and we discovered we liked the same sort of art. And, and so there was, as I say, there was a resonance there mm. within the group that was closer than to some, some of the other members of the group. Mm. Yeah. When I say group, I mean the college year group. Is it true that Freddie and yourself would head to the men's bathroom at Ealing College and use it for singing practice due to the acoustics and echo effect? Yeah, it really is. Together <laughs> with um, together there were some other people there who were good singers as well. Yeah. So um, it was uh, it was just the gents' loo, you know. Mm. But it, the thing about it was, it had a big ceiling, big high ceiling. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't the most pleasant place in the world to be. But you could get four part harmonies in there yeah. that would echo everywhere. Yeah. It was fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's cool. <laughs> in some years, some years later, in, in maybe about 20 years ago, I was contacted by a Japanese film crew. Yeah. Um, and I did a, a doc I did a documentary where we went back to Ealing. Mm. Uh, and although it's not an art college now, and I took them into that mm. gents Lou. And mm. I think I sang a bit in there. <laughs> I never saw the film, but um, yeah. 
uh, it was quite amusing, you know. Yeah, oh, that's cool. Around 1968, you started a new band called Smile with Brian and held an audition for a drummer where you discovered Roger Taylor. Um, yep. Could you describe for us what Roger was like and as a drummer, how highly did you rate him? Oh, we were blown away. Yeah. I mean, he, 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 the thing is, he, he was, I know I've, I've told this tale before, but uh, we, we, it was in a flat somewhere. I can't remember whose flat it was, so, um, so, somewhere up in Shepherd's Bush. And he brought his kit in, set it up, and we had a, as loud a jam as we could get away with in a domestic situation like that. And the thing is, he and he was just flamboyant, you know. I think he was the first guy we auditioned. But when you considered other drummers that were around at the time, you know, a lot of them were extremely um, restrained and, and you know, not, but he was, you know, <laughs> totally flamboyant. He, yeah. he would, the, the thing I saw Roger do, which I'd never seen anybody do before, was he'd hit the bass drum with his foot and hit the hi-hat at the same time and then, mm. and then keep the hi-hat closed with his mm. fingers so that it didn't ring. Yeah. So it would be a whoosh. <laughs> and uh, Brian and I were blown away. Mm. Absolutely blown away. It's a simple thing, you know, but very good stuff. Together with Brian May, you wrote the beautiful rock ballad, Doing All Right. Uh, could you describe yeah. for our listeners the story behind the lyrics, if there is one, and what it was like collaborating with Brian? Well, it wasn't the first song we'd written together, of course. Yep. The first song was Step On Me. And it, certainly with Step On Me, I think I was responsible for the lyrics for Step On Me, but I wasn't responsible for any of the music i mean brian could tell me i I'm, I'm remembering it wrong but i think i'm remembering it right but we're doing all right i think i had a little bit of input in the music as well and certainly that i mean there's no great mystery about the lyric it's just mm. simply teenage angst yeah i mean you know about well my life was terrible yesterday mm. but with a bit of luck it'll be good tomorrow yep. which i mean it's kind of it's kind of a universal constant, isn't it? Mm. It's. I mean, I, I'm still. I still think that now. Yeah. <laughs> like everybody in the world still, although it isn't. It's not like a wonderful Bob Dylan poetry song. Yeah. It's just a simple emotional focus that I guess makes sense to people and people yeah. like it. Yeah, I love that song. Did you have a favourite gig with Smile? I suppose it would have to be. I suppose it would have to be the Albert Hall, really. Yeah. Um, we did the Albert Hall. I can't. I know we did it with the Bonzo Dog uh, band, and Free were on the bill, I think, and and I can't remember who else. But I think that was it, it was clearly the the height of. I've never done the Albert Hall again. Yeah. Uh, and um and and for a kid in those days, you know, well, how old was I? Twenty, nineteen or twenty. Yeah. It was pretty far out, and uh, and I think my mum was pleased. My mum and dad hated hated the fact that my hair was halfway down my back. <laughs> but they forgave me because I played at the Albert Hall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Was there any favourite covers or originals you liked to play live? Yeah, I we used to do Tim Harding's song, uh, If I Were a Carpenter, yeah. uh, which we revisited again during the, uh, the Cross reunion in 1992. We did that again there. Yeah. Uh, but I used yeah. to like that one. It's kind of, um, it suited us as a trio. It, mm. it really suited us as a trio because it didn't re necessarily require masses of instrumentation. It just it just needed power chords and a real dynamic drum beat, and mm. then the vocals over the top. So it was it was never a complex song, but it was a dynamic one. Mm. And I used to really like that. What else do we do? I used to quite like April Lady off the off the record, but I always felt that. We should have done a bit more arranging for that. Mm. I mean, I think it, there's, it's got more potential than we than than it ends up with on our recording. Mm. Like we we probably could have done if we'd have continued and we'd have developed. It could have been developed. I think. I mean, it's not our song, but uh, the, I, I did like it, and it and it mm. was it was it was in five four time, which was also a, an interesting uh, a departure. And it, mm. but it, but you know, it was it was good. I, I like that. What else did we do? I think we did White Room. I think we did a cover oh, yeah. version of White Room, mm. uh, which I used to enjoy. Mm. Cream, you know. Yeah. Jack Bruce. Um, but Brian could actually come back to me and say, no, we didn't. <laughs> and I'd say, oh, didn't we? <laughs> so, you know, everything I say must be taken with a pinch of salt. Yeah. It, be, it must be, it needs to be verified first. <laughs> 
According to Brian May, while Freddie was in his own band, he would often attend small gigs in support where he became quite a fan of your work. And at times he was even confident enough to critique Smile's performance. Yeah. Do you remember Freddie showing up and doing this? And could you sense that Freddie was interested in becoming a member of your band? It's funny you should say that. I, I, that might be, yes, yes, maybe. Mm. Um, the thing, I think the thing you have to remember is that um, Smile was, Smile only lasted for a couple of years. Yeah. And you might say that after a year or maybe 14 months of it, I was beginning to get a bit twitchy about the way we were he- where we were headed. I yep. mean, I was, I was going off the boil. And if at the same time Freddie was becoming interested, I, I probably would have done my best to encourage that. Mm. Um, yep. uh, I think. I don't think I, I, don't think I was jealous. Um, yep. I know that he used to criticise our performance and say it wasn't um it wasn't flamboyant enough it wasn't showy enough and he was mm. damn right mm. and the reason that was that because i'm not a front man yeah i've never been a front man uh, mm. uh, um, which is really unfortunate if you're a singer yeah um mm. uh, um what it generally means is you need to play you, you need to play an instrument as well because if you don't play an instrument and you're a passive front passive singer you, it, it's not going to go anywhere. So, mm. which is why I'm, you know, I'm still playing guitar. And I, if I play guitar and sing, then then th- that's what I am now. Mm. But as far as being a, um, as far as being a showman like Freddie, I could never do that. I mm. just couldn't do that. I was mm. not. I was not a confident. Like Freddie was confident. Yeah. Freddie was Mister Confidence. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he may not have been at college in the early days. But by the time he left college, he he developed this confidence that, well, I don't know where it came from, I'm, mm. and I'm not, I'm not even that confident now, yeah. to be honest with you. And you know, I'm 73 now, and I'm <laughs> still not confident. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's it's nuts, isn't it? Yeah. But he, yeah. you know, he was he was absolutely he was full on, and I I mean, mm. and I I I just think that's fantastic. I think that's amazing. Yeah. I wish I could have been that way. But there you go. Yep. It's all right. We're all different. <laughs> well, Freddie Mercury's like one of a kind, so it's, you know. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> You're not alone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in 1970, you decided to take up an opportunity with a band named Humpy Bong, yep. alongside Australian and former Bee Gees drummer Colin Peterson and Irish folk singer Jonathan Kelly. This then made way for Freddie to join Smile. Was it a hard decision to make, and how did Brian and Roger react to the news? Um, it wasn't a hard decision to make because I'd I'd got to the point where uh, I mean the, one of the things that I sort of find that um, it, it's difficult for me to it's difficult to me to voice this, but I I got I was I halfway through Smile or maybe t- three quarters of the way through Smile, mm. I was getting tired of rock. Yeah of straight rock you know mm. i was just getting tired of it and uh and i i just i needed to go and ex- i needed to explore basically mm. i needed to explore stuff and when i went and joined humpy bong it, i i met peterson and kelly in a situation um i mean the name humpy bong came later and that was colin peterson because mm. humpy bong was where he used to live i think you know because that's up on the east coast isn't it yeah um uh and uh, I think that's where he used to live. Mm. So, uh, and the material they were doing was was kind of country folk, which was in which I was interested in mm. at the time. You know, yeah. um, I'd been interested in Dylan in the in the in the closing years of the sixties. I mm. suddenly got interested in Dylan, as opposed to being interested in um, things like Zeppelin. I wasn't really interested in Led Zeppelin. I, yeah. I'd like the Who, I liked the Who, and mm. I liked that kind of originality. I like the who and I like the move mm. and I like that kind of poppy rock, but I wasn't so keen on the kind of heavy rock that, that Smile were doing. Yep. Of course, when Freddie joined, they start, they started to write hugely original material, which lifted it right out of where we were mm. in Smile. Mm. So that was, that was brilliant, you know, and mm. I, I mean, the only other thing I can think of is that, Maybe if I'd stayed as bass player, it would have worked. Yeah. Maybe. Mm. But 
I, I wasn't really that um, uh, I, I wasn't really that interested at the time. I wanted to move on, and and mm. I and I did Humpy Bong for a while, and it was kind of all right. And I think the Humpy Bong single is good, and Kelly is a great writer. Well, I mean, God bless him. He's he's no longer with us, but he oh. was a really great songwriter. And yeah. um, and then because and then I but I then I I moved away from that and joined Morgan. Um, and yeah. and we did two albums in Italy, and we toured. And with that, which was a completely different, which was another different mm. type of music altogether. When it was yeah. prog rock, it was yeah. heavyweight prog rock that mm. stuff. And then came back to join Kelly afterwards. Okay, yeah. With his, with his live band mm. uh, with Snowy White and Chaz Jankel, um, playing, which was what effectively was White Soul. So I'd had a complete. Yeah, I'd had a complete education. Yeah, <laughs> in musical styles. Yeah, lots of different genres. Yeah. While while Queen were were going up, were on the up. You know, mm. I mean, he didn't do me any good, and he didn't earn me any money. But it yeah. was just a, it was a, it was a process. It was an education, you know, mm. and it kind of it laid the groundwork for the music I ended up playing myself. What I did explore was the fact that that. I mean, at the end of all that, at the end of the Kelly thing, it became apparent that I wasn't going to earn any money at it, mm. which is when I, which is when my, my wife pressured, well, she didn't really pressure me. Well, she sort of did, <laughs> um, but she wasn't my wife then, but we'd lived together. I mean, I think we, we, we both came to the conclusion that, you know, I'd better get out and get a job because she was paying all the bills and it's about time I started paying some of the bills. So that's when I reluctantly gave up playing music full time yeah and and moved into the field of art and, and yeah. tv so as your former band smile were transformed into queen with the addition of freddie and then john deacon um what was it like seeing the band you were once part of starting to take off i was pretty envious i, I was really envious i yeah. mean <laughs> i naturally was envious um yeah i d- I didn't really want, I didn't mind too much because where I was musically at the end of the Jonathan Kelly band was a long way away from, um, from what, what Queen were doing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, by the, by the time I came out of the Jonathan Kelly years, the thing that was interesting me so much was jazz mm. uh, and improvised, you know, improvised yeah. music. And uh, Queen were producing very tight music heavily arranged mm. which was kind of a long way away from where i where i was i mean i was playing in in part-time bands then i was playing i was playing more blues more jazzy stuff more improvisational stuff where you wouldn't play the, the song the same way on two separate nights you'd play it differently mm. you know and so so i couldn't have i couldn't have been in in queen because I'd lost the ability to be that disciplined, mm. you know. Yeah. It's okay. It's an, just another thing, you know. Yeah. You decided to step away from the music industry and started your own successful business as a freelance animator, prop designer, and model maker, uh, which included working on the model trains for the extremely popular children's television series, Thomas the Tank Engine. Um, what was this experience like and what did your role involve? Oh, that was the, that was the best gig ever, really. I yeah. Mean, um, uh, I'd been in the business for two or three years before I got the gig from for Thomas the Tank Engine. Mm. So I, I, I was mostly working 3D special effects, bit of animation, bit of sculpture, bit yeah. of artwork, storyboards, um, set designs, you know, that, that, that kind of thing, bit mm. of puppeteering. Uh, and then the gig came along for Tommy the Tank Engine, and uh, I was supervising model maker for the first series, yeah. which basically meant that I just was doing a bit of everything. I was mm. doing a bit of design work for the engines, a bit of design work for the sets, and then I was building some of the sets, troubleshooting the mechanics for the engines, um, working out how to make scale landscapes the right size, uh solving the mechanical problems solving the problem of the smoke machines all sorts of things like that i mean mainly I, I, I was i was running a team of about 10 and and i was only doing little bits because i was keeping an eye on everybody else we, i had a big workshop 
uh, where we were, where all the models were being built. Then we had the, the studio where we were building and shooting. And then we had two big sheds outside where we were building all the big landscape stuff. Mm. Um, and we once we we shot a pilot, which was a bit disastrous because we built the engines from scratch and they, they just kept breaking down. Mm. But then after that, we uh, we bought these engines, these German engines, uh, cut them up to fit, cut the shape, the, the wheel configurations up to fit and, and totally rejigged everything, built new bodies for them. And we used those to shoot with on the series, and they they were as good as gold because all the all the research and development had been done in the done by the German the original German manufacturers. So we we weren't we weren't breaking any new ground, as it were. Mm. We weren't um, we weren't experimenting at all. So, mm. uh, but once we'd started filming, uh, I, I I moved on again. That's mm. when I well somebody somebody offered me a gig as art director for a film company in the West End of London. Yeah. So I, I went and took that. Uh, and, when, and, when, and after I'd been art directing for a year, other people's commercials, they asked me if I wanted to direct some commercials myself, mm. so, which I did. So for another couple of years after that, I was directing TV commercials, mo- mainly special effects commercials, a mm. couple of live action ones, title sequences, demos like scientific demos like the washing powder demo i'd would set all that up and film it you know and and so it that so that led on into into a um into another another career change another hmm. skill set you know hmm. um because you did hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy too didn't you well we, yeah, uh, yeah we we did, we did a bit of overspill work yeah for the for the but not for the movie for the yeah. for the bbc series oh, okay yeah um, but this was earlier on. We did a bit of overspill work. Mm. We did a costume. We did some costume designs for that and um, some costume um, fabrication. And we did made a few props for that. But uh, but but it was own, it was being built in house mm. at the BBC. But we, we we had our own separate workshop and we were just taking spillover work from it. That's cool. <laughs> I grew up on Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> Oh, really good. <laughs> that was a good show. I still think it's good now. Yeah, you know, it's, it's still going, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's, it's CGI now, and it's in uh, Canada. It's been made in Canada. Yeah. But I still like it. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's been on for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Didn't make any money. <laughs> oh, didn't it? <laughs> no. Well, I didn't make any <laughs> money on it. Because you sign it, you sign your lot, you know, with things like that, you sign the away the, the copyright to someone else. Yeah. Because they've got it all sewn up and they and they mm. ask you, you want to work on this, you've got sign to say you've got no rights on it. Mm. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> when F- Freddie sadly passed away uh in nineteen ninety one, do you remember when you first heard the news and how did this have an impact on you? The thing is I knew it was coming. Yeah. Um uh not for very long, but what tipped me off was that uh, for for some time beforehand, mm. I was getting phone calls from journalists, yeah, um, asking for an interview about Freddie. Mm. And I initially thought uh, this was before anything was in the papers. I initially thought, well, why are they suddenly contacting me now? What what, what what's what's it's what's happened? happened? Mm. And and then and then I and then I kind of put two and two together and realised that you know. That he was he was deteriorating fast, and then uh, and I was sort of expecting it. I mean, I so uh, well, you know, what can you say? Yeah, it's a it's a bastard, really. Yeah, because uh, what what well, you know, I mean, what he left us a le- legacy of brilliant stuff. Yeah, he what would he have done if he'd survived? He'd have gone on. He'd have he'd have developed. The Barcelona um, side of his music, he'd have he'd have been writing more. He probably would have acted. Mm. I reckon uh, he he would have done all sorts of things. He would have mm. been a complete all round entertainer by now. Mm. It's a shame, but I wasn't shocked because I was expecting it. You know, I know that John Deacon it hit John Deacon mm. hard. Yeah, I mean, which is as I understand it, what caught that's really what caused him to pull the plug on the whole thing yeah yeah um uh, and uh, and i know that brian and roger were 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 pretty devastated mm. um 
yeah. people can use today. The media were pretty horrible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Much later in 2005, you made your return to music, releasing your very first solo album titled Amigo. Um, yeah. How did it feel to be back in the music industry after all these years and having Brian May collaborate with you? Well, um, what caused it, what started it was my son. See, what had happened was my eldest son, um, as he got older, we kind of, and, and he he went to Hampton as well. My Two of my oldest sons went to Hampton School oh, as well. So so there was a kind of an affinity there. And as he got older, we kind of used to like the same things. We used to we used to both watch Star Trek and we used to, both, yeah. you know, we were kind of on the same wavelength. And we started to get onto the same wavelength musically as well. And and because he's a drummer, he he responded to the kind of drummers that I liked. Um, and and that's how he that's what informed his is the way he played. Hmm. And uh, and so. Around about the year 2000, I, I packed up my business uh, in 2000, or in fact, in 2001, I think, um, because basically when the millennium came, there was a lot of work for the, my, for my sort of business. We were building, we were building exhibitions and museum work and uh, theatre work and, and commercials. And leading up to the year 2000, there was loads of work. So we were doing pretty well. As soon as the millennium passed, the work dropped off and we suddenly found ourselves really not with much work at all. And so we, myself and my business partner just said, oh, well, let's just call it a day, you know. And I said, yeah, I'm going to go back to, I should go back to model making. I'll just yeah. work on my own, hmm. which I did. And at the same time, I thought, I've got probably enough songs for an album over the years. Yeah. Why don't I... And I was talking to my son about it at the same time. Why don't I do an album? Mm. And so I, I was, I've, I'd always been in touch with Richard Lightman, who, who I'd worked with in the seventies, yep. a Canadian guitar player. And we got talking, and he said, and we we agreed. We said, why, why don't I just get all my tunes together that I've got, and let's make an album. And mm. he had a little studio locally. Um, it was mainly a voiceover studio. Um, but uh, what we decided to do was go and do the backing tracks in a bigger studio and then take everything into his little studio and do all the overdubbing, which is what we did. Uh, yeah. and, and it was great. And at the same time, I thought, why don't I phone up Brian and Roger yeah. and Snowy White and Morgan Fisher and Chris Smith, who'd done some work yeah. with us early on in Smile Days. Yeah. Uh, and... And Peter Hamilton and Rob Freeman, who had been the, the two guitarists in the others at Hampton. Mm. Why don't we get them in to do a little bit on yeah. the album? Unfortunately, Roger declined, mm. um, but Brian, um, Brian did it. And yeah. Snowy White did it. And Chris Smith did it. And the other guys did it. So I had, mm. a, I had a team of people... Um, and I think, and I think the album came out really well. Yeah, it was good. You know? um, uh, and as soon as I'd done it, mm. and I was, I'm very pleased with it. I was, I was mm. very pleased with the the end result because um, it was all my material. Yeah. Some of a couple of songs co-written with Richard Lightman, but it was all my material. But it was all old material. I mean, it wasn't all old material. It was about sixty forty. Yeah, old material. I mean, there was Earth that was doing all right. There was Country Life, which came from the 70s. There was um, Stray, which came from the 70s. There was um, Why Can't We Be Free, which was the, probably the first song I ever wrote, even before Earth. Um, and then there was uh, then there was Amigo. There was uh, um, You Ain't Cool. God, I can't, well, I can't remember. And, there, and a couple of others then, which were new songs. Yes. So when I'd done that, I, I kind of got the bug for writing again. I thought, mm. wow. I'm 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 back into writing, mm. so that's when I wrote the, the wrote the next album, the Too Late album. Yeah, uh, and and that was all new material, mm. and I was generally very pleased with with how that turned out. And as soon as we get shot of this lockdown, mm. I'm going straight to Barcelona, and yep. I'm going to record my third album. Awesome. So, and you did all the artwork yourself on the albums, didn't you? On yep. the covers, yeah. yeah. I thought I should do that. 
In 2018, you were called to Abbey Road Studios to re-record vocals for Smile's version of Doing All Right for the film Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, what was it like getting back in the studio recording this song? It was weird. I mean, because yeah. I didn't know that I was going to be able to hack it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I when I went along there, I thought, I thought, well, I think I can do it. I mean, but, um, my, you know, I'm, I'm 70 and I was 20 when I when I did the original, you yeah. know, so am I going to manage this? Anyway, I did, and it was <laughs> fine. And um, and, the, and the thing was, I, I couldn't initially see why they wanted me to do it, but then when I got into the studio, I realised that, that the problem was they needed to make some distinction <laughs> sound-wise from, from the smile snippet on the movie to the Queen stuff. And they were, they, they were trying to put it together they were trying to put doing all right together using the Queen version and using some other bits mm. of, of programmed some extra drums on that. But the trouble is it didn't sound different enough. Yeah. It didn't sound raw enough. So the the best thing to do is to get me in and I did it and I did the vocal and I also played the bass as well. Yeah. So so that it started to sound a bit more like the up smile of old. Yeah. Yeah. That that was it because it was mm. a rough it was it couldn't go back to being as really rough but it it had to have some element of that you know mm. uh, and and it wasn't that um it wasn't that tim uh, jack roth who was playing yeah. me it mm. wasn't that he couldn't sing it it was mm. that he was he was being asked to sing along to a, a backing track that was too sweet and so when they got me in they it was just a matter of recreating the the rawness i think mm. of the yeah. of 60s it was a great version like what was it three years ago now yeah like and yeah I met, who else did i met i met um who is it farrell williams is that is he oh yeah is farrell williams a guitar player from chic is that him nile rogers nile rogers yep nile yep. rogers yep yeah farrell williams is the bloke from the bloke he, he's saying, collaborated with him yeah yeah he's collaborated with him yeah. but it was nile rogers i met in the studio yeah um uh, who was a t- terribly nice guy, and, yeah. and Brian was there. Roger wasn't there. Roger, oh, okay. Roger. I haven't seen Roger in years. Yeah, I used to go to Roger's firework parties, but I haven't mm. seen him for years. I hope I haven't upset him for some mm. reason. Don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what did you uh, think of the performance of Jack Roth, who played yourself in the film Bohemian Rhapsody? And did you have anything to do with producing those scenes? No, I, d- I didn't yeah. even know they were happening. You know. Yeah. Um, no, I, th- I, I mean, he, he just got a script, didn't he? And he followed it. I mean, because, you know, the, he was asked, he, the, whole, the way they set it up the, of me leaving at the end of the gig and saying I'm off to play Humpty mm. Bong and and, um, and then Freddie coming straight in and saying, oh, I, yeah. I, got, I want the gig, you know. I mean, it, that was nothing like what happened. Yeah. Yeah. But the point is, I think if they'd have, if they'd have filmically filmically described the way it really happened we'd have been there all night yeah yeah because uh it just was a long drawn out mm. period of not much happening at all so yeah. as far as the artistic license is concerned and that was something about the whole movie they mm. had to they had to truncate bits of it yeah and, and they had to you know they had to speed up the timeline mm. i think they did a fantastic job it was a yeah. great film you know it was really yeah. enjoyed it and mm. uh and it was paced properly, and it was dynamic, and uh, and Rami Malek was outstanding. Mm. Yeah, and um, and so was so was what's his name, William? Yeah, William, the, the bloke who played Brian. I mean, he even sounded like Brian. They all looked so similar, and yeah, his voice. Yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> no, good, all good, all great stuff. Yeah, I was proud to be a, a part of it. Oh, it was good. It was I good was movie. proud to earn the money from it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I understand you also released your second solo album in 2018 called Too Late, as you mentioned earlier. Could you tell yeah. us a bit about that album? Yeah. Um, well, like I said, um, it, it represented it, re- it represented a proper return to writing. It, it, and when I look back on it now, I th- I think. Uh, what I, what what had happened with the Amigo album was the new material that was on the Amigo album uh, was was kind of me finding my voice, my my writing voice mm. in a in a, a kind of more contemporary style than the 
stuff than the early material that was on the album. And, and then that continued, that contemporary style continued on to Too Late. Um, the, the difficulty is knowing where you would pitch it. I don't know how you pitch that, those songs. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of Steely Dan, for instance. Yep. I'm a huge fan of Steely Dan. Um, and occasionally a playlist has come up on Spotify, which has got Steely Dan in it and my material in it. Oh, and yeah. other and other people like Boss yeah. Gags and and um, and Doobie Brothers and stuff and and so somewhere someone associates my material with that kind of material and I'm happy with that because that's where I think it should be pitched. Yeah, I've done about the next album. That's a different matter. Mm. Um, I think I've I think I've drifted into a parallel universe for my <laughs> third album. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll have to see what happens there. Yeah, that sounds good. Is there any up-and-coming artists that you're currently excited about? Yeah. Um, the uh, Lockdown has done this to me. Now, I'm there's a guy that I'm who just blows me away because I honestly believe that he is probably the greatest instrumentalist on this earth. Mm. I know that's... <laughs> garbage isn't it but it's a bloke called chris thiele yep he's a mandolin player and he uh he plays everything from bark to country to folk to uh to bluegrass to mm. the whole and if i were to tell you that i've never ever seen him miss a note and, and i've seen him and several times i've been to see him live i've watched him on uh, watched him on countless youtube videos and, and and I play mandolin as well. I've got mandolin up there. Uh, yeah. I, I play mandolin, but but he it's very difficult to make mis- very easy to make mistakes on mandolins mm. because they're tiny little they've got tiny little necks yeah. and four sets of paired strings. And if you've got fat fingers like mine, he is brilliant. He is yeah. so brilliant. Mm. And what what's happened w- with him is that following him has switched me on to other people that are in the same in, in the same stable. There's a, a, a girl singer. Um, there's, a, there's a girl band called, it's called I'm With Her, and it's, <laughs> it has a girl called Aif Donovan, Sarah Jarosh, and uh, Sarah Watkins, and sometimes Sierra Hull, <laughs> and they are folk, country folk singers <laughs> of, of, a, of a quality and a purity that just does my head in. Mm. I love it. It's yeah. not rock. It's yeah. gentle country. Uh, oh my god, I love it. It's fantastic. Mm. Brilliant. Any? Do, do you listen to any pop music these days, or rock music, or anything like that? Not really. Not no. Really. If I don't listen to that, I, if I'm not listening to um, that kind of stuff, I'm listening to jazz. I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, last week Chick Corea died. Uh, you know, one of the greatest pianists of the age, and uh, and I've, this last week I've just been dipping in and out of Chick Corea, mm. some of his work because it's just you know because I I did have a whole period when I listened to nothing but jazz fusion, yeah, and and uh, and I did a and then I went to three I did a, a course school I did three years of jazz guitar about five ten years ago now, mm. so I kind of. I've got, I've got a head full of everything. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm also, also, I, I, if I, if I had to go to a desert island with music, I'd probably only take Beethoven's piano sonatas mm. because every single musical idea ever made is in those twelve albums. You know, yeah. I, I've just got, I've just got a head. I've got, a, <laughs> I've got a musical head. Yeah, <laughs> I'm everywhere with music. I love. I love yeah. so much pop wise. Yeah, I probably do, but I don't follow. I don't listen to them enough mm. to. Um, I kind of. I know it's maybe it's a bad thing to say, but I kind of like Billie Eilish. You know, yeah, yeah. Because because it's original. It's mm. really original stuff. Yeah. Um, and uh, and who else? There's all sorts of things. There's all sorts of things you do like. You know, mm. I hear something. I mean, I might hear. I mean, I'd hear. I mean, I'd hear a Nicki Minaj track <laughs> and think, "Geez, yeah, that's great," you know. Yeah. And 
but then other things of Nicki Minaj I'd mm. listen to and mm. not maybe you know like there's a couple of things like Cardi B that I'm thinking that's so <laughs> off the wall I really like it you yeah know? yeah and I, and I really do like I really like the best the best sort of rap I yep. can't tell you who does it mm. but if I hear a good rap mm. I'm I really like it you know because mm. it's the rhythms it's the rhythms and I've always been interested in rhythm yeah what about um because some of my personal favorites from England are the 1975 have you heard of them yeah I've heard of them yeah uh, with Maddie Healy he's the lead singer Okay, I have I haven't yeah. heard their stuff. I'll yeah, have a look. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to get straight onto it. <laughs> no, I mean I, the trouble is you, you you do tend to default to mm. you default to your comfort zone. You yeah. know a lot. That's the that's the only prob, real problem. And I don't I, I don't listen to radio much. Yeah. Um, my wife has radio on, but she has classic seventies rock on all the time, and mm. it drives me crazy. You know, but what can you do? Yeah. Uh, so I don't have road. I I tend to dip in and out of YouTube mm. more than anything else. And mm. then maybe my son sends me Spotify links. I mean, he's my son's really into Brazilian stuff. Oh yeah. You know, so I'm 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 hearing a lot of uh, a lot of Brazilian material from him. Mm. But then he would be as a drummer, wouldn't he? So yeah, yeah, that's yeah. awesome. What would your advice be to those looking to get into the music industry? Well, it's different now, isn't it, than mm. was in those days. But I, I think that I think it's, it's what I said about about being a player. Being is that it's no use wanting to get into the music business because you fancy getting into the music business. Mm. You need to have ideas. It, you need to have ideas, and you need to. It's like it's like I think to myself. A lot of people do X Factor or you know, or Britain's Got Talent or Australia's Got Talent or Mm. whatever. It seems to me that a lot of those people just fancy the idea of being famous, um, a singer or, you know, and so they they audition and some of them get through, some of them don't. But Mm. the ones that crack it are the ones that have got ideas before they even go. And, you know, they've got, they've got styles. You've got, so, so I think my advice is make sure you've got, ideas and make sure you've got a style Mm. then Mm. i don't think you'll have a problem but if you just fancy doing it step back Mm. work up a style work up some ideas and then do it yeah that'd be my that'd be my advice awesome well what was the craziest thing you ever saw while you were gigging craziest thing yeah (laughs) the craziest thing that ever happened to us was when i was with morgan yeah Um, we did a gig up in the north of Italy, and um, uh, we had we had so much gear, and we had a lot of full light show and everything. Mm. And and the, the the every and we started the, when we started, it was a, there was a massive big organ chord and guitars and everything started off, and it blew every single it tripped everything in the entire building. So there was a big audience. We started and all the lights went out and all the power went off. <laughs> so they, so they went out the back, flipped the flipped the trips up again, mm. and and we started again and the same thing happened. And it and so what we had to do was we had to cut out the lights and then we then we had to cut out something else. What we had to cut out one of the monitor, one of the PA monitors, and then and by the time we could start mm. and not blow all the electrics we felt we were we were we just didn't want to do it yeah so yeah. so we said to the roadies sod this mm. we're we're leaving <laughs> we're 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 off now that we're fed up with this we've been we're being they're taking the piss out of us mm. so we said to the roadies you pack the gear up we're going so we drove off down the road only to be stopped about two or three miles down the road by the promoter and his mates with guns to getting us to go back to the gig and finish the gig. So they marched us back at gunpoint and we did the gig. <laughs> and it was, I mean, we thought it was crap, but they yeah. liked it and they paid us and that was that. But that was, that was the craziest, craziest thing. Yeah. <laughs> totally crazy. Um, if you didn't get into music, what do you think you would have done instead? Well, I think I would have, I think I probably would have directed film. Yeah. 
I mean, if I'd if I'd have done that early on, I think I would have ended up directing mm. movies or, or or commercials, probably commercials, mm. um, uh, not not movies, but because uh, because I, I nearly did that anyway. In the, mm. you know afterwards, I nearly did that, but but it was a bit too late. It was a bit too late to make a reputation when I started it. I mean, there were there was one of the things that I uh, I often like to point out is that when Freddie and I were at Ealing, Ealing College, one of our fellow students turned out to be one of the one of the top British commercials directors in London. Mm. Uh, so it was a so there was a it was a so there was more what I'm saying is there was more high high quality talent in the class mm. than just Freddie, you know. Um, uh, and there were other people that did did big things as well, but uh, uh, I, but I think I would have I think that's the way I would have gone. I would have mm. would have done been a commercials director or an animator. So, what are your plans for the future? Do you have any shows or gigs coming up once you get out of lockdown, of course, um, that our listeners could attend, or, or whereabouts can our listeners keep up to date with what's happening in your world? Yeah, well, I'm doing actually I'm doing a um, I'm doing a Facebook live stream on uh, Saturday. Yeah. This Saturday, just me, just sitting here, acoustic guitar. Yep. My lovely Washburn parlor guitar. <laughs> uh, but um, but after that, I don't know nothing. You know. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, except for the album. The next yeah. thing on the agenda is the mm. album. As soon as they let us out. Mm. I'm going to Barcelona and I'm going to do the album. So that's the next thing. After that, the, I think, I mean, this will be the last album because I'm old. I can't mm. walk properly. My knees are mm. shot. Yeah. Uh, I'm due to have two knee replacements. Mm. Um, hopefully, if I can, uh, if ever, if I can get walking again, if I can get new knees and if they mm. work, I'm <laughs> going to go, I'm going to go on some holidays. Yeah, I'm good. I think it's time. I I I used to do. I used to go on cruises. You know, mm. I I really quite like cruises. So I think, mm. I think hopefully, if I survive, if if we're allowed out, once I finish the album and if I've got new knees, I'm going to do some cruises. Sounds good. <laughs> go back to the Caribbean. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> Might even yeah, come awesome. to Australia. Yeah. <laughs> um, I noticed too. You got like humpy bong shirts as well. Yeah, I, well, yeah. you know, I, uh, um, they never existed at the time, mm. but uh, people kept saying, "Have you got?" Have it, it was the movie that did it. Mm. I mean, it was mm. totally the movie. People yeah. said, if, "Oh, have you got Humpy Bong shirt? Have you got Humpy Bong shirt?" <laughs> and I didn't have any. Mm. And uh, and then and then I thought to myself, because because we did we <clears throat> my band did the Queen convention last year, um, and I thought. Hey, and I got everybody to wear smile T-shirts. Mm. Except I thought, wouldn't it be fun if I designed a Humpy Bong logo and wore a Humpy Bong T-shirt? <laughs> so, I, so I thought. So I, I, I got the the standard Australian road sign with yep. a kangaroo on it. Mm. Stuck a bong in his mouth <laughs> and and uh, and put all dope stars and strikes around him and and stuck a bass guitar up up there yeah. and i and i printed it i got it printed and and it's, and then when when i when i when i played hmm. just people would just say oh i will want one of them or one of them so i i um so i printed them up i got them printed up and hmm. uh, and they're, they're on well i they I, I i use this company called printful yep uh you you know you 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 pass your orders on to them and they and they do the shipping and the, and the hmm. printing and that but it all seems to work so yeah, why not? That's cool. Uh, Was there anything else you'd like to share with us today? Or? Golly, um, uh, yeah, I'm sure there's loads of stuff, <laughs> and I'll remember it the minute we sign off. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, it, uh, no, I think I've bored you enough. No, I? no, it's been awesome. <laughs> uh, Tim Staffel, it's been a privilege to speak to you today. Thank you so much for joining me and sharing your incredible story. Uh, all the best of the future, and thank you for your time. No, thank you, Adam. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Really Thanks. enjoyed it. Well, there you have it. That concludes my interview with Tim Staffel. I hope you enjoyed it just as much as I enjoyed speaking with Tim. 
If you enjoyed that episode, please make sure you share it around with your friends, family, or music lovers. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already. It would be greatly appreciated if you could leave the podcast a positive review on iTunes, as this helps the podcast be seen by more people and helps it grow so I can continue bringing you more great content like this. If you would like to follow the podcast, you can find us on our website at lyricsoftheirlife.com or our socials on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok and Twitter. Or if you would like to take your support one step further, you can head to the podcast Patreon page where you can pledge your support for as little as $1 a month with no locking contracts or hidden fees. So thank you for joining me once again. Season 2 is just around the corner with Kurt Cobain Part 1, opening the season on the 22nd of March, so stay tuned for that one. I'm your host Adam Hampton, and this is Lyrics of Their Life.